The Guardian. Hello, Science Weekly listeners. Nicola Davis here. This week, you'll be hearing something a little different on the podcast. We'll be handing over the reins to some of our colleagues on the Environment Desk, specifically from a project called The Age of Extinction. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you next week. Hello, I'm Phoebe Weston. I'm Patrick Greenfield, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. We're working together on a project called Age of Extinction, which means all our work centres around one topic, catastrophic biodiversity loss and ways we can tackle it. This is just a pilot episode, but hopefully each month we'll bring one story from our beat to Science Weekly, whether it be looking at mass elephant die-offs in Botswana or looking at the impact of earthworms in the Arctic. But this episode, which will be split over two parts, is about national parks. And you went straight to the source last week, didn't you, Patrick? Tell me more. I was back in Norfolk visiting my parents at the weekend and I said goodbye to my mum. Bye, have a good, good working day. You're not having a Saturday off, are you? I wasn't. Drove up to Hickling Broad in, in North Norfolk with my best friend Adam. Right, so Hickling Broad. We went out on the water just to explore the broad. Usually we'd be fishing. Right, we've arrived, the wind, the reeds. And in many ways, it's the perfect place to start this episode because they're balancing the beauty of the natural world and the demands of humans on the landscape and the ecosystems there. And Phoebe, people love boating in the Norfolk Broads. Mate, they're going a bit quickly for the the Broads. It's like they're flying a bomber jet over there. I had a chat with lots of different types of people. Hi there, I'm sorry to bother you. My name's Patrick, I'm a reporter with the Guardian. Some were tourists, some people lived by the Broads. there were some really interesting opinions. It's relaxing, basically. Relaxing. What's your favourite thing about the pond? We've got baby fish. Do you feel close to nature when you're here? Uh, no, not really. There are cranes nesting, flying over. Every sort of waterfowl you could wish for, and it's very peaceful and they're not bothered. Why, why do you not feel particularly close to nature here? Well, I suppose you do with the ducks, but that's about it. Yes, the boats, I mean, you've seen the size of them going up and down. We've had otters playing on the lawn. We get kingfishers when everybody's gone away. But then everybody says that if you live in a beautiful place, you don't want too many people. Just last week, Boris Johnson promised to increase the amount of protected land in the UK to 30% by the end of the decade. We can't afford dither and delay because biodiversity loss is happening today. It's happening at a frightening rate if left unchecked the consequences will be catastrophic for us all. So the obvious question is, will that work? Well, to work that out, I think it makes sense to go back to the beginning. Phoebe, what do you know about the first ever national park? Not much. Um, I know it had something to do with John Muir. John Muir was a Scottish guy. (laughs) This is Christy Brigham. I'm the Chief of Resource Management and Science for Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. Christy oversees the science and research components of these two major national parks in California. And as I found out, she knows quite a bit about John Muir. He was a Scottish-American naturalist and author, and he spent a lot of time tramping around in the Sierra Nevada and other places in the Western United States 
And I think primarily because of his writing, his very poetic writing about wilderness and being in nature, he became a huge advocate for the preservation of nature for its own sake and the rejuvenating power of nature for the human spirit. And his name is is everywhere in your part of the world, on, on trails, on signposts. He is the father of national parks, right? That is what they say. You may have seen there's some controversy these days in the conservation community due to, like many people of his time, some unfortunate views that he had of Native Americans and, you know, human diversity. But he definitely did a great deal for nature preservation in the United States and especially in the Sierra Nevada. Environmental organizations founded by John Muir are only just beginning to grapple with his history of white supremacism. His advocacy relied on the belief that the American landscape was wild and untouched by human influence, a belief that ignored the existence of Native Americans. The role of Indigenous peoples in national parks is something we'll focus on in Thursday's episode, as it's a crucial part of the picture. These parks are amazing in terms of the plants and animals and geology and the cultural history of Native peoples, and also early European history in the United States. These days, there are 62 national parks across the US. If you want to see grizzly bears, you come here to the bear... And they're all protected and operated by the National Park Service. But it's only in our great national parks that we've preserved unchanged the really wild things and the immense wilderness they knew. For those who have not been, can you tell us about Sequoia and Kings uh, Canyon National Parks? They span a huge range in elevation, which is one of the reasons why they have such an amazing diversity of plants and animals. They're very old. They've been protected for a really long time. It's mainly wilderness, so very little infrastructure, lots of old, large forests, and a huge variety of habitats. One of the big conversations to have when it comes to national parks is conservation versus preservation. And actually, it's been a conversation that's been rumbling on for centuries. One of the misconceptions that Europeans had when they got to California and encountered this amazing, beautiful landscape was they thought, oh, this is untouched by human beings and humans are only a bad presence in nature. They didn't realize that a large part of the landscape had actually been shaped and stewarded by the activities of the Native Americans that were living here, that were burning, that were taking care of plants, that they were using basketry materials and basically interacting with the landscape in a positive way. And so that vision of preservation, leaving something untouched, human beings as a visitor only and not part of the system versus conservation, where you're open to a wider range of activities and the idea that people can be a positive presence and be part of the system in a positive way. National parks were set up at the end of the First World War to help the nation recover. There was an appetite to protect places for nature, for landscape, for people to enjoy. I spoke to Kate Jennings to hear the story from this side of the Atlantic. I'm the head of Sites and Species Policy for the RSPB. The RSPB stands for the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. 
They're the UK's largest nature conservation charity. Preservation is a desire to keep things the way they are. And conservation is more often a desire to do something active to protect and to make things better. It's a difficult thing for us to admit in in the UK, but is there really anything to preserve here, areas that are just left for the the wild? The current state of our national parks is that there is pretty much nothing there that one would describe as wilderness. So in the rest of the globe, there's a lot of focus on preservation of wilderness areas, keeping things exactly uh, the way they are because you have genuinely wild areas left in those places. In the UK, because we're a much more populated country, therefore, you know, man's had a a much more significant impact across all of the landscape. We really don't have genuine wilderness areas left on the whole within our national parks or indeed anywhere else. And so these landscapes in the UK are much more actively managed. One of the governing philosophies behind how humans should interact with national park is something called the Sandford Principle. The Sandford Principle basically means that where there are tensions between those three primary purposes of national parks, landscape, nature and people, then the protection of nature should be given precedence. In practice, that's been really poorly adhered to. There's been a lack of strong compliance with that Sandford Principle. And what what kind of effect has, has that had on the protected areas? Well, I guess it it just means that too often nature hasn't been given sufficient priority within our national parks. And when you look at the condition of our national parks for nature, that becomes immediately apparent. So, for example, if we look at national parks in England and we look at the condition of the sites within those that are protected for nature, what we find is actually those sites are doing worse than the equivalent sites in the wider countryside. So within English national parks, only 25% of our sites of special scientific interest, the best places for nature, are in favourable condition. That compares with 43.5% of those sites that are in favourable condition outside national parks. Phoebe, I was really shocked to hear this. It's so depressing. These areas are there to provide a refuge for species that would have once been really common across the UK. This is their last stronghold and they're failing them. It reminds me of the Glover Review, an independent review by a journalist called Julian Glover that came out a year ago. So it made 27 recommendations and they were basically really welcome. Essentially, the report found that national parks in the UK weren't doing enough to protect nature. Unfortunately, there's been quite a lot of chatter in government about the review, but we're yet to see much action from it. The reasons that nature's in trouble varies between these landscapes, but it's all to do with the pressures that they face. So, for example, somewhere like the Broads uh, is actually one of our better national parks in terms of its condition for nature. But there are issues around things like water quality that affect how much nature is there. In the uplands, the poor condition there is really driven by intensive upland management, primarily for driven grouse moor shooting. So this is where uh, blanket bogs in the uplands, they're drained they're burned, all management practices which have a really significant impact on their health and and therefore their ability to support other species. We should say that National Parks UK, which brings together the 15 National Park authorities, have listed habitats and biodiversity as one of their four major challenges. They say, quote, the protection and enhancement of biodiversity found across the UK's 15 National Parks is an important part of our work as a family would include a link to how each of their 15 parks is addressing these challenges on the podcast page at theguardian.com. 
a big part of what we're doing as the National Park Service right now is trying to help our parks be as healthy and resilient as possible because they're under such stress from forces that we can't control, like climate change, air pollution. And I think part of that is also a growing understanding that these systems are really complicated and we don't have a full understanding of how they work or what consequences our own actions could have. Do you think that framing it as a tension between conservation and and preservation is useful? I think most park managers and park scientists no longer are trying to preserve what we, we say a vignette of primitive America, a photograph of what these places look like before European arrival. Most of us, I think, have moved beyond that and are in a place where we recognize that these systems are constantly changing and we're trying to figure out how to steward them as best as possible through these changes. What does that mean for the biodiversity and wildlife in the park now? That means we're trying to grapple with some really complicated issues. (laughs) So first, I would say... We talked about the history, right, of, of the Park Service in general and these parks specifically and how old they are and how long they've had a preservation or conservation mission. And that means that although we've had some errors in judgment and did some things that we already recognize weren't the best, for instance, suppressing fires into the 1950s or hunting predators early in the day or those kinds of things, parks in general, and specifically the parks that I work at, Sequoia and Kings Canyon, because they're so old and have been preserved for so long, they have fantastic habitat and they are incredibly important for wildlife and plants as we move into an era of stress and change. We have a lot of old growth forest, which is really important and has been lost from other areas of the landscape that had more logging. We have really good habitat for species like California spotted owl, fisher, and other old growth species that prefer big trees. We also have been doing some level of burning and allowing wildfire to burn when we can since the 50s. So that means that we have some good forest structure in a lot of places that's really um, good for those species. But what we're experiencing, and I think is true for land managers around the world, is that even with that, we're still seeing stresses on species that we need to think creatively about how to address more in the conservation realm than the preservation realm, where we think it's no longer going to be enough to do nothing. What role do, do humans and, and tourists, visitors to the to national parks play in this? I guess in the in the bias, biodiversity loss itself in, in Sequoia and in, in Kings Canyon National Parks. I think visitors are a positive in that people come, they love it here, they connect to nature and they become stewards. And the, the impacts that we're seeing to biodiversity are part of a bigger global problems that are not individual visitors stepping on things or 
having a negative impact. Stewards of the land or not, visitor numbers to national parks in the US is attracting growing controversy. The popularity of parks has increased massively and problems of under-resourcing, overcrowding, traffic congestion, waste management, visitors interacting with animals and wildlife irresponsibly, visitors behaving dangerously for a good photo opportunity or selfie are all big problems facing the park service in America. Over the past 50 and certainly the last decade, uh, visitation to national parks, especially the large and prominent national parks, has really gone up. And we have facilities, we have trails, we have campgrounds, we have infrastructure to uh, accommodate those visitors. And that infrastructure has been built in the most sensitive way possible. But there are national parks that are struggling with how to accommodate the number of visitors that we're having. And an interesting part of this COVID pandemic has been that for public health, a lot of national parks have restricted visitation. And that has given us an opportunity to look at our parks and think about what are sustainable levels of visitation. The coronavirus has illustrated like never before people's desire for and need for connection with nature. In the UK, the coronavirus pandemic has also led to some clarity for the RSPB's Kate Jennings. And national parks are places where that should absolutely be supported and facilitated. There are lots of questions about how people are managed within those landscapes, both to make sure that people from all communities and backgrounds feel really welcome in those places. I'm not sure that's currently the case, but also so that we manage their impact on those environments. So, you know, issues like the amount of motorised transport, cars going in and out of, of those places are a concern. In terms of challenges for their management, then, yeah, the really big ones are about how land is managed, whether that's for farming, grouse moor management in the uplands, water management in the lowlands. Those are the really big challenges. If we don't get this balance right, what do we stand to lose in terms of biodiversity in the UK, of, of what remains? So our national parks contain some of the largest blocks of remaining semi-natural habitat in the UK. So they should be some of the safe refuges for wildlife within the wider landscape. And, and at the minute, they're not fulfilling that function. We are seeing species, things like curlews, things like ring oozles, which have retracted from the rest of the countryside, become concentrated uh, within our national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty and are now being lost from those. Do you think the philosophy around national parks in the UK needs to change? I think maybe it's more that the philosophy of national parks needs to be re-remembered. I'm guessing here, but I, I imagine some of the things you're, that you've said might be a little bit worrying to our listeners. Do you have any advice for people who, who might want to visit national parks in the future and how they can strike a balance and... and not be part of the problem. My advice to people would be to go to our national parks and to enjoy them. None of this is about keeping people out or keeping people away. I think when they go, it's really good if they ask about where the best places to find nature in those landscapes, if they emphasise the importance of nature to them. But the last thing I want to do is deter anybody from going to our national parks. I think this has been, for me, one of the 
most shocking things about covering this job. Mm. Over the months, I've been lucky enough to visit national parks in Costa Rica, in the States, in the UK. And I've learned to see now that when I go to a tropical rainforest or a, a national park in the UK, the human effect on the landscape, and you can't unsee that once you understand what's going on. Mm. What does it say about Britishness and I guess the United Kingdom that we're in such disarray with these apparently natural areas. Well, we like to romanticise our landscapes and in some way they are part of our cultural identity in the UK. But we're massively taking them for granted. Way more needs to be done if we're going to reverse the really worrying declines we're seeing to British biodiversity. You've been listening to the Age of Extinction Takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Phoebe Weston. I'm Patrick Greenfield, and we're both biodiversity and environment reporters with The Guardian. Make sure to tune in to the second part of this conversation on Thursday, where we'll be looking at the way global conservation efforts impacting Indigenous communities. This episode was produced by Leona Hamid, the executive producer was Max Sanderson, and the commissioning editor for The Age of Extinction is Max Bonato. The Age of Extinction project is supported by the BAM Foundation and by the WIS Foundation. If you want to find out more about this content, head over to the podcast page at theguardian.com. You'll also find links to any of the reports or articles mentioned in this episode. Rate, subscribe, leave us a review, tell your friends, neighbours. We want to hear your feedback. And if you'd like to hear more of us, let us know by emailing scienceweekly at theguardian.com. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.